you have reached the voicemail box of Speed Dial with Ira Madison III and Doreen St. Felix. This week, we're interviewing Brett McLaughlin, a.k.a. Leland, a singer, songwriter, and producer based in Los Angeles who has written hits for artists like Dea and Troy Sivan. Next, we talk about the disaster that is Billy Bush and the triumph of Al Roker. And finally, we'll be talking about what it means to make an important black film in 2016. We'll be discussing Ava DuVernay's documentary, 13th, and Nate Parker's film, Birth of a Nation. Leave a message. Doreen, I don't know if you saw yesterday's Today's Show, but the look on Tamron Hall and Al Roker's face, <laughs> they were like, uh, Billy Bush ain't here anymore, was everything. Call me back. It is so funny that you asked me if I if I saw that episode of the Today Show because that morning I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be on the internet for a couple of hours. I'm going to relax. And then, of course, as soon as I log back in, I saw all the memes of Al Roker looking so smug. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, my my crops are full again. That was you amazing. know what? I've never really seen it for Billy Bush, to be honest. Um, I feel like he's gotten away with being related to the Bush family and no one has really called him out on stuff that we call out the other Bushes for, but he's always been sort of suspect. Like he got in that fight with Nicki Minaj three years ago because she like wouldn't answer a question on the red carpet. And then that whack ass interview he did with Ryan Lochte this year. So basically, if y'all don't know what happened, last week a certain tape was leaked and within it, it shows Donald Trump and Billy Bush, who I think he's George Bush's cousin or some shit, but he is a Bush. He's been a host of Access Hollywood for years and they're talking and Trump is just making the like most lewd comments ever about certain women and Billy Bush is just cackling along. They're kicking like wannabe sexual assault <laughs> predators. And this tape got leaked and Billy Bush deleted his Twitter before the tape was even published and issued an apology. But I think it's pretty clear that it will be impossible for Billy to reclaim his career in any way. And it just is, the karma is so swift and she is so on time because y'all remember during the Olympics, Billy Bush was like, eh, Lochte, not a big deal. And Al Roker was the only one with a conscience up on that programming. And then when it came to who was going to announce that Billy Bush was suspended from the show, on Monday, on the Today Show, you know who did it? Al Alyssa, darling, that was chamomile tea. <laughs> I love every inch of this little story. Because first of all, that video was taken in 2005 on the set of Days of Our Lives. And you know how near and dear Days of Our Lives is to me. We all do. And the woman who was like... Donald was supposed to have the scenes with was Ariane Zucker, who plays Nicole Walker, Robbins, Robert, Kyriakis, Demira on the show. And 
she's been my girl for years. So hearing them like talk about that shit and then having her walk up after not having heard any of it and Billy Bush being like, how about a hug for Donald Trump? You know, like he's the star and her giving him a hug. And then like the moment where Billy's like, can I get a hug too? And Ariane's like, uh, no. (laughs) He's such a loser. He is such a loser. The fact that Billy Bush probably lost his entire career all because he wanted to be in with Donald Trump you must he has to feel so pathetic you know it's that moment where so many men because they want to be down because there's a man around them who's more powerful they don't actually they completely mute you know their good senses Mm -hmm. and will enter into conversations that are completely you know I watching that to me it's like he completely forgot that he was a journalist right and was just so concerned about being in the celebrity realm that he didn't see what the moment was and this is something that he knew was gonna leak so he's Mm -hmm. been preparing for the complete implosion of his career Trump Trump's fine. It's just another scandal on Trump's roster. But for Billy Bush, you're right. not as powerful as him. So don't try and get into the shit that he can get into because, you know. I love that we kept finding out things. The fact that, like, NBC had this video. They were deciding, were they going to release it? And then come to find out today, they were planning to, like, remove Billy Bush's words from the video and just show Trump. And I feel like Billy was like, this shit is going south. He deleted that Twitter. He flew to Acapulco. (laughs) He is on a beach somewhere, like, hiding out. He probably got rid of that that ugly shit that's been on his head for years. I hope he shaved his head finally. Put on some wigs. Talked to Joanne the Scammer. Like, he needs to get his new life because he was talking about grabbing pussies with Donald Trump and now he needs to step his up. (laughs) Was that organic or had you written that prior? That was so organic. That was so (laughs) organic. I am very pleased and also a little bit disgusted. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite part of this too is that like, because Billy Bush is related to a political dynasty in America. I know. You know? And Trump is running for president. But the funniest thing is, I really don't think anybody in the Bush family is going to give a fuck about Billy losing his job. You know, there's not going to be any Bush family retaliation like this is Dynasty or Dallas or some shit. They're just sort of like, eh, and he'll come around like Christmas and they'll be like, Probably shouldn't have done that shit, and then they'll move on. If they even let him come to Christmas dinner, honestly, on the totem pole <laughs> of bushes, Billy is underneath <laughs> Jeb! Exclamation point. Anyway, on the topic of people fucking up um, their relationship with women, which is 
exactly why Billy Bush got fired because Today Show was like, um, suburban white women in the Midwest are not about to be watching his ass on TV anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about Nate Parker because we already dove into his film before and the controversy surrounding it and how he just sort of kept fucking up with interviews that were about his alleged sexual assault in 1999 when he was in college. And now the movie has come out. The Birth of a Nation is finally here. It's in theaters. You can go see it. Nobody else did, though, because it debuted at number six. Here's the thing. I think we can have a conversation about the film itself and that we can glean understandings of what Nate Parker thinks the role of women is supposed to be in both movies and also in real life without even talking about the allegations. Because I promise you, Birth of a Nation stands on its own in its own mess. It's not a good movie. It is so bad. A couple of weeks ago, Critics who weren't looking at Nate Parker's history but were looking at only the film itself started to put out bad reviews. And part of why the Nate Parker personal history is such a big story is because it seemed like Birth of a Nation was going to be sweeping the Oscars, that it was going to make a really big testament in the canon of black film based on the way white people responded when they saw it at Sundance. But then this writer, Vincent Cunningham, who's at the New Yorker, wrote an extremely elegant, but also totally just unforgiving takedown of the film. And he just talks about how it traffics in a lot of cliches that we have about slavery movies, I'll say that in quotes, and that it also doesn't even tell the Nat Turner story with any with basically no historical accuracy. And a lot of other critics were critics were echoing that sentiment. And I have to so be So historically inaccurate. It really at no point in the movie did it seem like Nat Turner was a person who had visions. You know, he just had like these weird visions of like himself as a child running around like covered in soot or whatever. And it didn't seem like his visions were propelling him in the story the way that I've always understood in the Nat Turner story. You know, like there's even simple things like Nat Turner once ran away from his yep. owner, Sam Turner, and returned a month later, like delirious, talking about how. God told him that he had to come back and be a servant to Sam. And so much of the movie is focused on like his relationship with Sam that he's had since he was a kid and how (laughs) Sam like hilariously becomes like this alcoholic who then turns evil and like allows, you know, women on the plantation to be raped, which is kind of nonsense because these slave movies always sort of ignore the fact that women were getting raped left and right. Like, it wasn't called rape then. They were property. Gabrielle Union's husband in the movie is like, you know, if he allows this to happen, I'm going to be so upset. Like, he'll have to lynch me. And I'm like, first of all, 
you would have allowed this because it would have happened well before you were married. It probably would have been happening every day. And two, they didn't even call it lynching then because you were property. Lynching started happening after slavery. It's really anachronistic the way the story is told. And for me, Nat Turner is one of those his, uh, figures in history that is so complicated, right? A lot of the dialogue, if you can call it that, around this movie has been, well, this is an important story that hasn't been told, so we have to take it however we can get it. But if He still didn't even tell the story. He didn't tell the story, and if stories are to be told, they're to be told with all of their complexity, which is to say, Nat Turner is... To me, a very ambiguous person in black American history, right? So he essentially, the way that I always understood his visions of feeling like he was a savior, you know, his radicalization through Christianity, it actually reminds me of a lot of the ways people today talk about Muslim men, you know, how the state of oppression that you're in can radicalize you. And to me, I think that ultimately Nat Turner failed and failed in a way that exacted exacted a huge human cost. Part of the thing that happens is after him and his crew, you know, they kill like 50 white people and they also kill killed women and children, which is not shown in the movie. And I'm sure you y'all can come up with your own speculations as to why that why that isn't there. But after it, there's essentially a reign of terror in Virginia. And so White people just were killing black people for no reason for months because he had he was hiding for two months. So they were killing them until they found him in order to hang him up to 200 and up to 200 up to 200 black people were killed. And the film just sort of has Nat Turner turn himself in for some reason when historically he was discovered by a white person in hiding. It's so so facile, and I think if we're really going to tell Nat Turner's story, it can't be within the dichotomies of like, oh, like he was good because everybody else was bad, or he was righteous because everybody else was, you know, greedy. And I was like really just struck by like how many white critics were so quick to say that the film was like excellent and important. after Sundance just because we were in the midst of, you know, Oscar so white. Um, And I think we really needed more. We always need more black critics around, you know, because like white guilt is a motherfucker, you know? (laughs) And um, one piece that I did find was um, Lan Ray um, Baccaray from The Guardian back in January. He wrote a piece that was like, uh, this movie is disappointing. It's overwrought. Um, you know, the directing is very obvious. The music choices are obvious. I mean, there's a lynching scene set to Strange Fruit, which <laughs> is something that you would do in high school. It's so corny. Um, and he said, um, Landry said on Twitter to me that he got a lot of backlash um, from that piece uh, and just sort of the mood in. Um, Sundance, um, according to him, and also Kyle Buchanan at Vulture, was just that if you said anything bad about the movie, people were like, what are you doing? I mean, I think anybody who feels that they have to defend Nate Parker 
if you are being honest with yourself, you'll be very disappointed by that movie. But another movie came out this month that is so the opposite of disappointing that it's insane. 13th, this documentary by Queen Ava. I don't know how she completed this feat, how she put all that information in such a like short amount of time. That movie like shook me. You know, like it was a documentary and it felt just as powerful as Selma did, as Queen Sugar has. Ava is just about that life, you know, and there's a difference in seeing someone who knows what they're doing on camera and, you know, with Nate Parker, who sadly doesn't. It was a documentary, but it just felt so... It felt so urgent. It felt so necessary. Um, I thought it was beautiful. Me too. And I think Ava is the kind of filmmaker who is so rare because she can make every single kind of movie. To make Selma and then a couple of years later make this documentary, which is about the exemption clause to the 13th Amendment. So the 13th Amendment technically abolished slavery, but there's an exemption in it that says that people who have been punished for committing a crime, aka criminals, can be enslaved. And this is the loophole that makes our prison system run and then justified mass incarceration. And she does such a good job of setting up that history and really naming names and telling us which corporations, which associations, which organizations. She even gets somebody from the ACA, which is um, a correctional organization in America, to talk about the subject, and even though they're always denying all of the claims that, you know, the silent producer, the, the silent questions that they're receiving, to me, the fact that she went up and beyond and actually talked to somebody on the other side is just a marker of somebody who believes in journalism and understands that in order for you to bolster your own point, you need to have other voices in it. And I thought that the film did such a great job of consolidating all this information and it's very effective in the sense that you leave it feeling different from when you started watching it not only because you've been educated but because you've been jostled it's emotionally very um intense it was an intense viewing for me even though it was just it was just talking heads but the way the story was told and the impressive use of graphics i thought This is something that people should study. Kids should be watching in schools. All y'all have Netflix. So turn off, you know, whatever corny Marvel TV show you're watching, for example, and put on this documentary instead. Listen, (laughs) listen. But I will say that for those who have read The New Jim Crow, um, that book came out in 2010. So this obviously tackles new ground. Um, there were a lot of interesting things about D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation, actually, um, which enlightened me. You know, I didn't know the effect that um, the KKK didn't actually burn crosses until that imagery popped up in the film. Um, I also loved how she contextualized it in the current election and what we have now. It wasn't a Hillary Clinton endorsement. But what it did do is indict 
Clinton for her super predator comments and Donald Trump's involvement in the Central Park Five. But what they also showed is how Clinton is sort of using her campaign to address past ills and move forward, whereas Donald Trump, the juxtaposition of his comments at his rallies where people were being attacked and talking about the old days when protesters used to be squashed and just showing like those videos it was hillary needs to use that for her campaign (laughs) send it to every black community and let them know Today, we are joined by Brett McLaughlin, um, a.k.a. Leland, on social media and on the stage, um, who has written songs for some of your favorite artists like Dea and Troy Sivan, and one of my personal favorites, Kat Graham. There it is. There uh, it is. So, um, Brett, how's it going today? Hey, or I'm great. Leland, how's well, it going? I'll respond to both. Okay. Um, <laughs> Every everything is great. Happy to be here. It's like a Prince thing, actually. I feel like if I had Prince in here, I would call him Sign. Well, really? Okay. I don't know what I would call Prince. I would call him nothing. Prince wouldn't be <laughs> on speed dial. Anyway, uh, Doreen is here with me as well. I am. I have so many questions for you today, Brett. So amazing. I've always been really fascinated by songwriters and producers because, on the one hand, you create songs that could be sung by anyone right but then when the song is performed by a certain artist we like only identify that song with them so you know somebody like Daya or Troy Sivan or other people that you've worked with the songs that you've written for them or co-written with them have become theirs and so is that a challenge for you when you know like you get commissioned or asked to write a song for a certain person how do you balance the art of songwriting with also making a song for that individual artist. Right. I I think each project is different. And our, when I say our, I mean myself and my co-writers, our expectations for each song is different. Um, It's important not to be attached to songs um, and always know that you can write another one. Um, For Dea, we went in and specifically wrote songs for her. So any song that didn't make the album, we're now pitching to other artists. Um, and and we, we have quite a few. You know, we wrote probably 25 songs for the album and 15, 14 or 15 made the album. But with other, with other uh, songs, you know, we have to take a calculated risk. Um, and I would say as our brand grows as individual songwriters, we are able to make uh, more, I would say, powerful moves. Um, we're also able to hold on to songs. Um, and what's very strange, and this is true, everyone will tell you this is true, as your career uh, continues and, and grows as a writer, people listen with different ears. So a song that I would have pitched three years ago when I had no songs out, no placements, no cuts, and no hits, an A&R might listen to that and be like, oh, it's, it's fine, it's fine. 
but I could play that same song next week in a meeting. That song's amazing. That's incredible. I love that. I need to get my artist on it immediately. And so you just laugh it off. You have a great attitude about it um, because you find that, that people listen differently depending on what you've done. I mean, I think we all know about being gassed up once you are somebody. Right. Um, nobody was checking for me when <laughs> I worked at this little known website called BuzzFeed. But moving on, uh, you were saying we, so like you have like a crew, are you like a Power Rangers group of like songwriters? It feels that way. Um, I do work one-on-one -on -one with artists. I enjoy it a lot. Uh, but when I'm just writing songs to pitch, I have my like go-to team of people that not only I'm obsessed with because of their personalities and because we have so much fun together, but because they are insanely talented. Um, and the chemistry is there. So I know that you you live in L.A. now, right? Right. West Hollywood. Was that a move that you made because it was just going to be impossible for your career to be elsewhere? I never realized how collaborative songwriting actually was, how many people needed to be in a room together to, like you were just describing, have a lot of just dead time when you're just talking to each other because that's how inspiration strikes. So for you, do you, you know, for people who might want to start songwriting or think that they want to be songwriters who are listening, would you say L.A. is the place that you have to be or is it something that you can do, you know, from your home? I know you're from Biloxi, for example. Yeah. Um, moving to L.A. was so hard, um, so tough. Did not really want to do it, but I signed a publishing deal with EMI Publishing right out of college. And the deal was out of L.A. It was a pop deal with John Platt, who now uh, runs Warner Chapel, but was president of EMI Publishing at the time. And um, so I, my best friends were all in Nashville. Everyone from college, they were all staying in Nashville. I was, I had a boyfriend in Nashville. I was like, this is it. Like, I'm here. And then signed this deal. And I was like, I got to go. <laughs> and I, I never, like, second guessed it. But it was so hard. And I moved to L.A. with, like, $700 and immediately like uh, hit a median while driving into LA oh, no. and busted a tire. So there was like $300, got a $300 speeding ticket in Texas while driving from Nashville to, uh, to LA. So it was a shit show um, and it was tough. And even while having a publishing deal, um, I've had like so many jobs I can't even begin to tell you. Um, I've like, Catered, I catered Kim Kardashian's wedding. Um, <laughs> what? To, Wait, what? To the basketball player, um, I sang in cover bands for weddings and made next to nothing. Um, but I had to be in LA, and I worked so hard to stay in LA. Um, and you have to do it right now. You can write pop songs either in LA or London. I would say there's an amazing music scene in London. There's some great UK artists, and there are not enough what I call, what we we say top liners who do lyric and melody. Mm -hmm. There are quite a few great producers in London, but not enough top liners. So when I go to London, I get like amazing sessions and pretty much every session is with an artist because there's so many artists working on projects there. But you do initially have to make that move. Um, can we like backtrack I knew to it. you I knew and it. Kim Kardashian's of course. wedding? I have to be careful because... <laughs> I'm sure I signed some sort of crazy NDA <laughs> or seven. Um, 
but it was insane. And I will say, what, which, uh, yeah, I, I can totally say this. Um, there was a time when I catered for about three years, and I made so many friends that way, and I got the job off of Craigslist, and um, and catered probably like thirty-ish weddings and bar mitzvahs, and um, this one they didn't tell us what we were doing, um, and we showed up, and I had a feeling I was like piecing it all together while we were on the bus on the way there, and um, and Earth Wind and Fire was the wedding band, and it was great. I felt like a guest. Like I had the best time and I was cleaning up towards the end of the night and uh, picked up what I thought was a napkin and stuffed it in my apron because I was just cleaning up and got home to find that it was uh, one of the bows of Kim's dress. Oh my goodness. Um, And I still have it in like my closet. But yeah, there are some crazy experiences uh, just trying to stick it out and survive in LA. And And that's, yeah, that's one of them. Yeah, you haven't only survived, you're completely thriving and in addition to all the songwriting that you do for other artists you are also a performer on your own um and that's what ira mentioned in his introduction that you also go by Mm -hmm. leland when you you know you're doing your own stuff and you have that amazing track aware and i love the video Uh, thank you accompanying it i love it's basically this older couple this older cute white couple they go out for dinner they get a little tipsy they get a little high and they're just like having this night on the town and i thought it was so ingenious how by just using images that are slightly askance of what we normally think of when we think of like you know Mm -hmm. hot and heavy love like you could tell such a different story so i would love for you to be able to tell us about what it's like to write for yourself and what it's like to be your own artist yeah, that was such a fun time. I've I've taken some time off from doing my project and performing because I really wanted to focus on writing for others and um and I wanted to be able to fund my project the way that I envision it. Um and that's really tough to do um when it's just really tough to do when when you're an independent artist. Um so I uh I, I love writing for myself and to me it's it's just low pressure and I get to hang out in a studio with a producer that I love and um, and just mess around with ideas and, and figure out what I want to say and with that project with AWARE um, I was teaching full time at Musicians Institute at the time I was teaching 40 hours a week this is while we were making the Troy Savant album and, um, and I was yeah I had like tons of private lessons and songwriting classes that I was teaching and um, and my friend Chase, who I went to college with, he was becoming a great, great producer, and he still lived in Nashville. So we had Christmas break, and I said, Chase, why don't I like fly you out to L.A. for the week during this break, and let's make an EP for me, and I'll pay for everything, and I'll fly you out, and use like my Southwest points to like fly you out, and you can <laughs> crash on my couch, and um, and so I did, and we came up with Aware, and I didn't really understand. Not to like toot my own horn, but I didn't understand how good the song was and production-wise what Chase had really created. He very much created a sound, and I loved the vocal production. And um, and the song, the subject matter itself is just being self-aware um, about uh, if if you like send a nude to someone, you're like, no, I know I did that. Like I'm not embarrassed by it. Um, that if you like dive into the lyric, it's just owning kind of if you 
act a certain way, just own it. And, and that's, you know, I felt like there was a lot of um, shame that sort of came with being a gay man that is sexual and or sexually active. And, and I was like, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and I, you know, and so that's, that's the lyric for the song. Um, and with the video, the entire video cost $500. And it yeah, was favors and I friends. Like that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there was really no other option. And I would say friends from all different walks of life came together to help make this video possible. Um, I, Susan Berman, who is the woman in the video, um, my friend Justin Root and I were in Rite Aid, the one at Fairfax and Sunset. And we were talking and we heard this woman. We walked down an aisle and Justin and I were just joking back and forth and she heard one of our jokes and was dying laughing. We ended up striking a conversation for 35 minutes and exchanging information. And um, and I called her and she said yes. And then John Aprea, who played the uh, older gentleman in the video, I met him at, name drop, but I met him at Rufus Wainwright's Christmas party a few years ago. And were you catering or were you attending? I was attending. <laughs> I was <Okay>. attending. A <laughs> um, <laughs> very fair question. <laughs> um, I was attending and um, and met John there. And I told John I was a songwriter, and he just had so many amazing stories. He was a bartender in LA when like Frank Sinatra lived here, and and just had incredible stories. And he said, you know, there's this song that I've been trying to find. He didn't know that iTunes existed, you know, he's, he's older. And um, he's like, there's this Christmas song I've been trying to find called Christmas Shoes. And I, I heard it years ago and I would just love to hear it again. So I went home that night and found the song on iTunes. My sister sings that song year round. So I knew the song already and, um, and gifted him the song on iTunes. And he like called me in tears. And he, he was an actor in like The Godfather and he, he acted his entire life. Um, really, really great actor. And so I called him and I was so nervous and I called him, I was like, would you want to do this video? There is no budget. And he said, I am happy to do it, whatever you need. And he and Susan ended up having amazing chemistry. Everyone on set was just really um, honored to like have both of them there and especially John and his stories and they were so easy to work with. And my friend Drew, we had our director drop out four days before. So my friend Drew from Mississippi um, stepped in to direct the video and killed it. And um, my friend Ali managed a venue called Three Clubs at the time. So we were able to shoot most of the video at Three Clubs for free. And um, and I, th I think I got Subway to like cater it. And um, it was just awesome. And then Billboard premiered the video and a lot of really great things happened when the video came out. Um, and there was some discussion with labels, but uh, at the end of the day, it didn't feel like it was the right time to completely dive into my artist project. Um, mm -hmm. Leverage is such an important thing when negotiating deals and when setting yourself up for the next five to 10 years. Because as a writer and an artist, we don't sign typically sign deals that last one year or two year. We sign deals that last two, three albums, four albums, five albums. So the more leverage you have, the better you're going to be set up for the rest of your life. Um, so that's even like detouring to encourage young writers don't sign deals early unless it's a great deal and you're protected and you have an attorney. So I see so many writers sign deals and they're like, I couldn't afford an attorney. So I just signed it. I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's terrifying. 
I'm still in the first publishing deal I signed eight years ago. And thankfully, everything has worked out beautifully and I've been taken care of. But there are many situations where that doesn't happen. Before you go, can you tell us um, maybe what projects you might be working on now? Any sure. artists? Um, yeah, I, I'm working, continuing to work with Capital Cities. Um, I've been a fan of them. I was a massive fan of the last album just because the concepts are quirky. The melodies are quirky. The production is quirky. And, and I love that. That's like my favorite type of pop to write, I would say. So I did the single vowels that came out a couple weeks ago. Uh-huh. Um, and then we are continuing to work on the album this month. Um, I've been working a bunch with Andy Grammer, who I love and I'm such a fan of. And his voice is amazing. Um, we'll start working on new Troy next year. Um, working a little bit on Selena, uh, which I'm so excited about cause I love. Selena came back from the dead and you were working with her. <laughs> oh my goodness. Selena oh. Gomez. I love her too. What Doreen can I live? No, um, <laughs> no, no. Um, yes. And, and then a lot of newer artists, um, And you have to just pick and choose the ones that you believe in and the ones that you think want it to. Um, Because a lot of artists, especially now who have a lot, a big following on social media prior to being an artist, they're sometimes thrust into that situation. And you're like, ah, if you don't really want it, why do I want it for you? When are you writing a hit for Rita Ora? Honestly, she, you know, she's now on Atlantic. Yeah. And they are great at what they do. So if there's a song that I've written that she wants, I'm happy to give it to her. You, I loved I Will Never Let You Down. I thought that song was same. so good. That was a bop. And the video was everything. MTV News, you heard it here first, y'all. <laughs> Ira, you will never, I will never cease to not be surprised by your ability to bring up Rita Ora no matter who we're talking to. <laughs> it is really Listen, amazing. When we get, <laughs> when we get our future president, Hillary Clinton, in here on speed dial... I will ask her when Rita Ora is going to be in the cabinet. <laughs> but for today, yeah. we were just speaking with Brett McLaughlin, who's so generous with his time and with his talents, giving us some of the best, in my opinion, pop songs coming out. They're really visionary. They're the Thank future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Brett. Of course. Thank you for having me anytime. I'm going to go back and watch one of my corny Marvel shows, Doreen. Okay, I'll, you know what? I'll go watch an episode two. All right. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. This episode of Speed Dial was produced by Kasia Mihailovic, Michael Catano, and Mukta Mohan for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at MTV Podcasts. Subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.